Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Cinemus, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm head conductor Mike Emmel, and I am very excited to welcome our host for this episode. Taking some time away from his duties at the Classic Movie Must podcast is the man whose name rhymes with joy, Mr. Max Burrill. Welcome to the show, Max. Mike, pleasure to be with you. Happy to be on the show. The pleasure is entirely mine. I am a huge fan of Classic Movie Must, as uh, anybody who follows us on social media probably knows, and you have been doing excellent work lately, my friend, so it really means a lot for you to come and... Uh, Host one of our episodes. I appreciate it. I mean, you know, us classic movie podcasts, we've got to stick together. That's right. Band together. Um, and I want to welcome you, but I also want to welcome everybody who's listening. Welcome, everybody. We really hope that you enjoy the show. If you do, you can check out all of our other episodes at our website. It's at cinemus.com. You can also find those shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, on Stitcher, really anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just search for Cinemus. If we're not on there, let us know. We will do our best to get there. And for daily updates on show content, you can follow us on the social media platform of your choice. You just got to search for Cinemust. So we're here today to debate the must-see status of two movies that some might say are essential viewing. To do that, we are going to need all of your help as two people alone cannot decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. So to help us build that essential cinema list, we need all of you listening to visit this episode's post at Cinemust.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Uh, Max, I wonder if you would be so kind as to explain what those three categories are. My great pleasure. The first category, the Senate must. This is the category that you, as the film connoisseur, would recommend to absolutely anybody and everybody. The next, Cinetrust. Here you're getting a little bit more selective Maybe you don't want to recommend it to everybody. You don't think it's going to be up everyone's alley. This is uh, the movie you would recommend to a select group that you think would particularly appreciate it. And lastly, the Cinebust. Uh, I think it explains itself, but the movie you really wouldn't recommend to anybody. That was Max's first time giving that pitch, and dude, you nailed it. Excellent job. Uh, I mean, it's, it's all the credit to you for creating such uh, three such succinct categories. Oh, you're very kind to uh, validate my OCD. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. Um, but hey, if, if all of that was still a little too much, too fast for everybody, we are going to put those categories into action, give a little bit of a demonstration. First, by announcing the results of the polls from our previous two episodes, we had a big Oktoberfest doing a lot of scary movies. So if you're curious to find out if Halloween, Scream, and The Cabin in the Woods attain must-see status, uh, let's tune over to find out. Okay, we got a lot of results to do because we have an extra movie tacked on because Halloween was a bonus episode uh, and we only gave people a week to vote on that one. But the polls are now closed and we are excited to reveal what you all thought. And there is nobody I would rather be joined by to reveal the results of those polls than the host of episode 24, Mr. Jeffrey Crisp. Welcome back, Jeff. Are you sure you don't want me to find like a homeless person that would be better suited to? I tried. They don't come near the house anymore. That's fair. <laughs> Welcome back, man. How you been? Good. Good, how are you? I'm really good. I'm, uh, I'm excited to reveal the, the results of the poll, uh, which we should just dive into. We put it on our listening audience to decide if the films discussed in our previous two episodes should be voted Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. And I'm curious to see how you feel they got voted. I'm going to be quite honest. I've got a good feeling down in my loins that Scream... Is that a little no, too much? Fine. Okay. <laughs> 
You said you would f*** a werewolf on our last episode. You're fine. (laughs) Okay, so in my loins, I feel that Scream came out with a Cinetrust and Cabin in the Woods came with a Cinemust. That's what I'm feeling. You're a witch because that's exactly what happened. (laughs) And if I sound defeated, uh, I loved Scream. I didn't have a lot of faith it was going to make Cinemust, but there was a part of me that held out hope. But yep, our listeners have decided that Scream is a movie that is for a select group of people, but not for everybody. But The Cabin in the Woods is a movie they would totally go to bat for. It is now a movie everybody must see. And we have some comments to read on those, but I think we should just give results uh, really quick for the bonus episode, John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween. Do you have an opinion on that one, Jeff? I know you weren't on the episode, but you're a smart guy. You know, it's been so long since I've watched it, I cannot give a good opinion on it. Okay. Well, I'll just tell you what happened. Halloween is definitely a cinema must. So much so that 100% of the votes deemed it a movie that everybody has to see, and it is only the second movie in our entire show's history that has done that. It joins The Princess Bride as the only movies to have a 100% approval rating. Oh, yeah, those are two very similar movies. Yeah, they basically are the same movie. John Carpenter's a a hack. Or I guess William Goldman would be... (laughs) Never mind. So thank you so much to everyone who voted. Along with the polls, we actually have a lot of comments. People have varied opinions about all three of these movies, and we want to give shout-outs to everybody. So let's start with Scream, which, though it was voted a Cine Trust, is actually the movie that garnered the most comments. So, Jeff, let's dive in. What did the first person have to say about Scream? So the first person is Loosely Based on Movies podcast, and I feel like I remember saying something specifically to them on Twitter. Uh, But their comments, their number one reason why Scream is a fun and good movie for them is, uh, quote, Stu, he's my favorite, especially at the end. And you know what? We all have our own bad opinions. Some of them are better than others. I stand by loosely based on movies. I think Stu's not the best character. That goes to Dewey, but you know what? He's not my favorite, but I do love Stu, and it just, I freaked out because I was so happy to see somebody else who liked them because on the episode, you famously hate Stu, so it was nice to find a kindred spirit. Oh, good. Well, you're just cool people with nice opinions. Yeah. (laughs) Our next comment comes from Twitter from our friend Chris, who's at MovieBozo. His comment is, do you like scary movies? then you should see Scream. It has some fun with those whodunit slashers that seem to be a dime a dozen in the 80s. Maybe Scream is an honest reflection of those movies. They weren't great, but you had plenty of campy fun. So Scream, to me, kind of captures it perfectly. Which is a very astute analysis of uh, the self-awareness that Scream exhibits that you and I debated, which I feel is maybe the thing that uh, got it in a trust category, but I thought that was a good comment by Chris. Yeah, I agree. So next we have Erica D. from At The Poppity on Twitter. Uh, who says, watch scary movie instead, question mark, emotes. And I think Erica D was kind of just trying to get my goat because I pretty vehemently came out against scary movie on the show, but I really did like that joke, so well done, Erica. Next comment from Twitter comes from our very own Anthony Badger, who you can follow at, at masked underscore awesome. He says, unpopular opinion, but... It's okay to prefer a sincere and genuine horror movie without layers of irony and smarmy awareness. Scream is clever, but it only shines by reflecting the genuine article. Luckily, Craven can't be criticized for this. He more than earned the right. Uh, I don't feel like I have to respond a lot to Anthony because we're best buds, but uh, he's really smart. I'm glad to have him on the show. That's a really good point about the self-awareness. Next, we have uh, Gabriella at noir underscore or underscore never on Twitter. Very clever. 
who said, It established a new wave of meta horror and was directed by Wes Craven. I think Cabin in the Woods is definitely a much better film, but Scream is still a very entertaining watch, despite Sydney's 90s fringe. I feel like I agree with that. Yeah, I like Sydney's 90s fringe. She's got it going on. Last from Twitter is from the Who the Hell Is This For podcast, who say, I don't think Scream's self-awareness is dated at all. I think a lot of the tropes they identify have been so long-standing and, ingra- and ingrained into pop culture that it still works regardless. I think Craven handled it well. If it had been most other directors, it definitely would have been too in your face. I don't think Scream's self-awareness is dated at all. Just how they did it um, is dated to now. Okay, so you don't have a lot of faith in the way Craven handled it. For the time, I think it was good. I'm just saying it doesn't, ha- it doesn't stand up to how Cabin in the Woods did it. Okay, well, we'll get you get you and Who the Hell is This For podcast in the same room. You guys can duke it out. But one thing that comes out in that that's come up in a lot of comments is uh, that faith in Wes Craven. Even though the movie only got Cinetrust, a lot of people kind of echo our remarks on the show that Wes Craven kind of was the only guy who could have ma- pulled this off as well as he did. Um, so that gives me hope. Scream didn't do so good, but we also have in the book from him uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, as well as The Hills Have Eyes, and maybe those ones stand a better shot at being voted cinemust. So that is it for Scream. Let's move on to The Cabin in the Woods, which, very surprisingly to us, only had one comment. So this is from Miscast Entertainment on Instagram. Uh, their number one reason that it is a must-see is it's a clever and well-thought-out homage to horror films. Could not agree more. Thanks, Miss Cast Entertainment. You're the one champion for Cabin in the Woods, though it didn't really need it because uh, pretty handily voted a cinema must. And then we got a couple more comments for Halloween. We're almost through. Our first comment on Halloween comes from Instagram. This is from Snow White Film Reviews, who said, Halloween is a must-watch, classic for a reason, especially for those who love slashers and or are starting afresh in the genre. The character of Michael Myers is a force which one wants to understand, yet one feels content in never actually knowing. Uh, really good, and that talked a lot to Anthony's point about the iconic status of Michael Myers as a, a slasher villain and a genre icon. So couldn't agree more. It's also a pretty good starting point. So Jeff, if you haven't watched it in a while, you should. It's a must-see movie. Is this the one where a couple got stabbed as they were having sex in the bed? You really need to narrow that down. You just described a lot of slasher movies. Oh, okay, you know what? That's fair. Uh, no, you're thinking of Friday the 13th. They get to oh. In Halloween, they get to finish having sex. It's nice. Oh, good! Glad they were able to do that. <laughs> What's next? Next from Twitter, we have PJ at MineNYC2. Uh, number one reason they would recommend Halloween is I'd say best slasher outside of Psycho. It holds a great sense of menace before anyone is killed, like the simple stopping of the car. Classic music, sense of place, autumn slash Halloween, and great cinematography with pumpkin images in the background. And PJ and I got to have a little a- offline chat about. Um, psycho and its place as a slasher or not because i agree i would say it's it's definitely one of my icons and we kind of debated a lot of like is psycho a slasher like it doesn't have a lot of the the typical tropes of a slasher but the spirit feels right so that's a debate that could rage on but that was, that was a great comment next on twitter also from our friend ryan l terry who you can find at rl terry one number one reason halloween is a must see it's the original slasher Next from Facebook, we have Cody Williams, who says, I don't get it. A bunch of laundry blowing in the... Ah! Is classic. Is classic. (laughs) And lastly, from an anonymous Cinemust voter on the website's poll, the original is a must. New one? Meh. 
So I was glad we got to cash in a little bit on the the new Halloween, the 40 years in the making sequel, which we kind of had some loose thoughts on. But apparently, according to everybody, does not hold a candle to John Carpenter's 1978 original, which, as I mentioned, is only the second movie to get a 100% Cinemust vote. So congratulations to it. Congratulations to Cabin in the Woods. We will add them to the list of essential cinema. Scream, yeah, you did your best. And you'll be back when we open the polls up in a year or so. I'm not excited that Scream got a Senate trust. I do like it. Just wipe that smirk off your face. <laughs> no. I respect the rules. Democracy has spoken and um, it's okay. You know, a lot of people came out in support of Scream. It just, you know, didn't quite make it over the line. That's all right. Not every movie is gonna. So really, thank you so much to everybody who voted in those polls. They are now all closed, and we're going to lock those results in. But with this new episode, we're opening up a new one to potentially get tonight's films voted onto the Essential Cinema list. So make sure to go to episode 26, post at cinemas.com before midnight on Sunday, November 18th to decide if both of tonight's films will make it onto the list. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for stopping by to read in these results. Do you have any final thoughts on these movies that you helped usher in? Well, like the chain around my neck says, I love that I was here. Thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about these great movies that we discussed. And uh, thanks for allowing me to come back to see what everybody had to say about them. And Halloween. I wasn't there for that, but I like seeing those comments. Yeah. And though he's not here, uh, all of our love to Anthony Badger, who hosted that episode. I hope he will be very pleased with the results. And uh, thank you, Jeff. You are always welcome. Thanks, man. So let's get going with the episode proper. I am now going to turn it back to Max, who is going to introduce what tonight's films are and why he chose them. And just a little spoiler warning, it's going to be a lot of fun. There is a big twist in the first movie spoiler section, so everybody stick around. So the movies we're talking about today are two Hitchcock classics. The first, The Lady Vanishes from 1938. And then the hallmark, Strangers on a Train from 1951. Now, when you, Mike, when you and I were discussing about collaborating on this episode, I was in the midst of planning Alfred Hitchcock Month on my show, Classic Movie Musts. And so I was very much in that headspace. And given that it was only a month, I could only do four Hitchcock movies, and I was dying to talk about more. So we, we landed on these ones as a little train-themed episode. And, uh, and I'm excited to talk to you about them today. And Hitchcock Month on Classic Movie Must was absolutely astounding, man. You did an amazing job. Uh, you happenstance picked my absolute four favorite Hitchcock movies. You did, um, it's 39 Steps, Notorious, Psycho, and Rear Window, right? Exactly. Okay. Everybody listening, finish this episode, please. We're going to do a great job. We're going to have a lot of fun. But once you are done with this, please head over to Classic Movie Must. You really need to listen to all four of those episodes. Max absolutely knocked it out of the park, as he usually does. Thank you, Mike. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to pick your brain for one second. Why, um, why specifically these, if you were going to carry on you know, Hitchcock movies you absolutely wanted to talk about? Uh, what about these made them stand out about, above some of the others? I think these are two interesting movies in that they, you know, we, we think of Hitchcock as this master director, and he is, rightfully so. But even the masters kind of have to work out some of the quirks and the kinks in their films. And that doesn't mean that these films aren't, you know, excellent in certain regards. But I think they both represent interesting builds in his career towards some of those iconic masterpieces. And, uh, and I think, you know, movies that don't necessarily get everything right are are just as interesting and sometimes even more interesting to talk about than the ones that get everything right 
Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Um, I, we should uh, just get moving with it. I shouldn't tease the episode. So let's get rolling with talking about them. For anybody who's new to the show, for a couple of minutes here, we are going to do our general impressions portion of the show. Max and I, we're basically going to try to sell these movies to anybody who's never seen them or never heard of them. We're going to give a little plot summary, uh, maybe a little background, and then Max and I are going to vote each film into one of the three categories that Max so eloquently defined. We're going to do them Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, and to back up our votes, we got to give three reasons why we vote the way we did for each movie. Um, from there, we will give a spoiler warning. We will have to back up each of those reasons, and we will discuss each film individually more in-depth in spoilers. But let's get to it. We always do oldest movie first. As you mentioned, Max, The Lady Vanishes from his British period in 1938, and it falls on me to do the plot summary for that. After suffering a serious head injury, young heiress Iris Henderson befriends the bubbly old governess Miss Froy aboard a trans-European train ride. When Iris awakens from an afternoon nap, Miss Froy is nowhere to be found, and every passenger on the train vehemently denies seeing her. Unshakable in her conviction, Iris enlists the help of Gilbert, a cheeky musicologist, to find Miss Froy and prove she isn't crazy. I am very interested. You're, you're keeping your votes under wraps here on our little uh, agenda, Max. How would you vote for The Lady Vanishes? My vote is it is a must. Can you give me three reasons why? Oh, it would be my pleasure. So first off, something that Hitchcock, you know, comes back to throughout his career. I think this is a, a great early example of his interest in the appearance of a situation versus reality of the situation. So appearance versus reality is my first big takeaway with this movie uh, in Hitchcock in fine form there. The second key reason is the tone of the movie, both the humor and the irony that, uh, that Hitchcock brings to the table, I think, gives this film a lighthearted but still eerie tone that, uh, that kind of sets it apart. And lastly, what strikes me about this movie, even though you know, it's not something I had thought about long before, but I think this movie is some interesting practice that Hitchcock got under his belt for what would later come in Rear Window. That's interesting. That's not... The connection between those two movies is not one I would readily make. I'm really excited to hear that point. You're a bit of a better man than I. I love The Lady Vanishes. It probably is one of my top 10 favorite Hitchcock movies, but I feel that I've got to vote this a sin of trust. I don't think this is a movie I can recommend to everyone, but it's really, really good. My first reason is I think, hands down, this is Hitchcock's funniest movie. He's not known for doing straight comedies. He has a couple, and in my opinion, they're a little bit disastrous. But here he's got this really great balance of screwball comedy, of um, you know English preposterousness and things like that. So we'll talk more about it specifically in spoilers, but I think this movie is pretty hilarious, and um, that's something that he does really well here and he doesn't necessarily nail elsewhere in his career. Uh, my second reason it's a, it's a movie that's worth seeing is it's a pretty scathing indictment of pre-World War II global politics. Uh, I like to think of this movie as kind of like the British... Casablanca. We love to talk about Casablanca as the movie that's about America finally getting itself into gear and getting involved in the World War. I think The Lady Vanishes has a lot of similar points to make about um, pacifism and ultimately doing what's right and joining the fight against evil. My third reason, this is the reason that I don't feel I can vote this a movie that everybody has to see, is there's some uneven pacing here. I think the first act uh, might throw off some new viewers. I know it kind of threw me for a loop the first time I saw it. I really love it now, but 
it takes you in some directions that you're not necessarily anticipating in what is on the surface just a straight mystery movie. I think ultimately it works in favor of the themes of the film, but uh, in, in good faith, I don't know that I could say this is a movie everybody has to see. But definitely one for Hitchcock completionists, for people who love classic movies. It's a fantastic mystery. It's a great comedy. I'm, I'm pretty on board with everything you said, Max, so I feel kind of dirty voting it in that category. Well, I, I'm just going to elaborate because I realized I, I just kind of said cinemust and, and went on to my reasons. I think, I just have to say, we'll get into more obviously in the, in the spoilers, but it is a movie that I think embraces Hitchcock's popular appeal. So I would recommend it to anybody. That doesn't mean I would think necessarily anybody would love it, but I'd recommend it to anyone. Yeah, you, you are a, a much more confident uh, in yourself and your ability to sell it. I, I don't know that I could really sell this one as good. I think it's definitely, it's probably the second best of all of his British movies. Um, I think 39 Steps is his masterpiece in that area. I would have no problem voting 39 Steps as Cinemust. Lady Vanishes just wasn't quite there for me. I'm not as confident as you, so I admire the, the passion. I'm excited for the conversation, but we got another movie to intro first. We do. Uh, Strangers on a Train. What is that movie about, Max? Let me tell you, Mike. While on a train, tennis pro Guy Haynes and idol playboy Bruno Anthony meet by chance. Bruno seems to know all the details of Guy's public and private life. Most importantly, the guy hopes to marry a high-profile senator's daughter, but is being thwarted by his cheating wife's refusal to divorce him. Bruno proposes an exchange of murders. He will kill Guy's wife if Guy kills Bruno's hated father. Crimes which Bruno insists can be accomplished with impunity because the police will be unable to establish motives for the suspects. Guy regards the whole thing as outrageous, but what Guy doesn't yet know is that Bruno is deadly serious. Mike, what's your vote? Big wrestle on this one, but I think I'm also going to give Strangers on a Train a Cine Trust. I think a, a, pretty similar to Lady Vanishes. I think this is absolutely one for Hitchcock completionist. My three reasons. One, I think this is a high concept film that's actually perfect for Hitchcock. I think there's a lot of movies that you feel only this director could have made this story and make it work as well as it does. And I think Strangers on a Train is definitely a movie only Hitchcock could make work to the degree that it does. My second reason, Robert Walker's performance as Bruno, as the villain, uh, he is easily a, a third of the reason why people should watch the movie. He is magnetic, disturbing. I think he's one of Hitchcock's greatest villains. I think he plays against a protagonist who is purposefully kind of bland, but that makes Robert Walker's performance shine all the better. It's a really, it's really good acting job. My third reason that kind of tips me more towards trust from must is Hitchcock has a mastery of craft that just barely pulls you through some of the pretty overwrought or extravagant sequences. I feel this movie, more than a lot of other Hitchcocks, really pushes you between the boundaries of reasonable suspension of disbelief. He does that in most of his movies, but he... The illusion is a lot more complete in other films. This one is really high concept, and often you're pretty aware of the logical inconsistencies of it. And I don't think Hitchcock quite keeps a lid on that as well as he does in other movies. So that's just what I think. What about you, Max? I think we're on the same page in a lot of regards. Now, I got to be honest. I was, I'm torn between two places on this movie. My heart 
says that Strangers on a Train is a Senate bust. Ooh. But the film historian in me knows, and you know, it, you can't help but be swayed by this. It's actually one of Hitchcock's more popular films. Yes. But uh, so I think there, there is enough to appreciate in this film to, it's a Cine trust. But part of me really does want to go with the Cine bust, but I, I can't go that far, at least not yet. Who knows? Maybe I'll sway myself by the end of this episode. Well, that's interesting. We have, we have similar thoughts. I was just different because the film historian in me wanted to make it a must that, you know, clearly this is such a, a movie that's integral to Hitchcock's standing in American cinema. So even if people don't know the title of this movie, I feel that the plot of it is, is out there in the ether that people know, oh, that's the movie where the guys swap murders. Um, so I was like, oh, maybe it's a must for that. But we landed on Cine Trust, both of us. I'd love to hear what your three reasons are. My three reasons. So when in The Lady Vanishes, I opened, you know, my last point is really like, oh, you know, he's kind of building towards Rear Window. Um, I think that's kind of like a, a little bit of foreshadowing in there. It's underneath the surface. Here, my opening reason is that he is building towards Psycho. Uh, Psycho, at this point, is nine years away. And I think in Robert Walker's uh, Bruno Anthony character, we see very much the beginnings of Norman Bates coming to the surface. And that, I think, is the most intriguing aspect of the movie. The second, you know, Hitchcock, as always, is a structural master. And uh, his ability to kind of interweave doubles throughout the movie is, is something to behold. But the reason that really ultimately brings me, you know, between Cinebust and Cinetrust is the failed suspense. That's my third reason. I think Hitchcock really fails at suspense in this movie. Uh, while he succeeds in other areas, ultimately this is a, supposed to be a suspenseful movie. And to me on that front, it just doesn't work. Okay, so we're pretty much on the same page on that point. Well, is there anything else you would like to say in defense of either movies just to, to garner interest? It, it sounds like we feel... If these aren't movies for everybody, they are at least movies that are worth seeing. Oh, absolutely. You know, Hitchcock, even, even when he's not on his A game, is always doing interesting things. I think you and I, uh, you know, in one of our Twitter conversations, I said that I, I think just about every Hitchcock movie has a compelling reason why there's something in that film that could be someone's favorite Hitchcock moment. He brings something special to every movie he does. And there's usually at least one or two moments that just knock you, your hair back. And, uh, and the, for those moments, it's always worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had this theory. I, I think this idea gets thrown around a lot that people say Hitchcock never made a boring movie. That's not true. He's made plenty of boring movies, but Hitchcock never made a boring movie unless he was bored with it. There were a lot of movies he did that were just on assignments or were kind of repeating things and his heart wasn't in them and the movie suffers. He's definitely not bored with either of these movies. He is definitely, like you said, trying some interesting things, trying to make social statements, trying to do things with craft. So for that reason alone, yeah, they're definitely worth uh, a little peek. Definitely. Well, if there's nothing else in defense of them, um, if you haven't seen the movies, everybody listening, uh, go out, watch them. We would love to hear how you would vote for them. But we need to back up the things that we said, back up our three points. So let's get going into spoilers for The Lady Vanishes. Have you seen my friend? No. Um, my friend, where is she? Uh, La Signora Inglese, the English lady, where is she? There has been no English lady here. What? There has been no English lady here. There has. She sat there in the corner. You saw her, you spoke to her. She sat next to you. 
But it's ridiculous. She took me to the dining car and came back here with me. Who went and came back alone? Maybe you don't understand. I mean the lady who looked after me when I was knocked out. Ah, perhaps it's making you forget, eh? Well, I may be very dense, but if this is some sort of a joke, I'm afraid I don't see the point. Max, I feel kind of shame for the first time on this show because I was really torn with Lady Vanishes between Cinemust and Cinetrust, and um, I really do admire your courage putting it Cinemust. You have a lot more faith in the movie than me, so I'm kind of hoping that as we discuss it for the next half hour, you can sway me, you can give me some courage, and I can switch my vote to, to Cinemust. Whew. I think we should open this up with um, tone. I think that's the, the reason of yours that I find the most appealing up front, that you think this movie has such a spot-on mix of its irony and its humor, and I agree, I said that this is Hitchcock's funniest movie. So let's talk a little bit about that. What about the tone specifically works really well for you to make this a must-see movie? The tone, to me, it like is interwoven into all the points that we've talked about. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to later get into your points about the pre-World War II politics, but I mean, it's, it's, the film is very funny. It's very charming, both on the romantic level and the kind of the political level, the, the winks it's giving to the audience in terms of the statements it's making. But then as well, you know, you're, you start to have these Hitchcock flourishes of his visual ironies. I mean, my favorite of which, the most iconic of which from this movie is probably uh, Mrs. Freud's name written into, into the window, uh, mm-hmm. you know, disappearing just as they enter the tunnel, and then similarly with the, uh, the tea wrapper on the window as well, and the, the, the quite literal lady vanishing trick in the luggage car. I think these are those, you know, Hitchcockian visual ironic, you know, flourishes that just, you know, he's aware of every single thing he's doing. Nothing is not calculated, not, uh, you know, as determined as it is meant to be. To me, obviously, we expect that from Hitchcock. But what we don't always get is the, the light side, the humor. And even though you're in this kind of life or death potential situation, this is a charming movie from beginning to end. And, and that's both in the late, the main characters, as well as all the kind of accompanying train members who are crucial to the movie as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm also very impressed how succinct and tight, like the central mystery of what happened to Miss Froy is and how he balances that with to me, he's he's kind of making a lot of movies at once. He has this, you know, pretty straight mystery. Where did Miss Freud go? What you know, what's the conspiracy? He's also balancing that with this screwball comedy that he has going between Iris and Gilbert. He has this political message movie that is getting woven throughout and is really prominent in the first and third acts. And um it's it's pretty impressive how he threads that all together to just make an entertaining movie that doesn't take itself overly serious. I think that's pretty key to the the intrigue of the mystery is that it it doesn't lay too heavily on the the profound effects that this is going to have on global politics or things like that. Um, one of my favorite things. If, if have you read um, Hitchcock Truffaut the the book? Yeah, the interviews. Yeah, really good. Um, I don't know that Truffaut said this was his favorite of Hitchcock's necessarily, but he he has a point in there where he says I've probably seen this movie twenty times, and I it comes to Paris all the time. I see it twice a week, and I can never tell myself to ignore the plot and look at the film because I just get way too invested in the characters and the mystery. It's, it's a movie that defied critiquing from one of Hitchcock's greatest critics. And I, I've probably seen it five times now, and I actually agree with that. Every time I want to look at form and stuff, I get just way too involved with uh, the exploits of Charters and Caldecott, with 
the meticulous way Hitchcock gives people reasons to deny that they saw Miss Froy, the absolute best is, um, what is the name of the, the illegitimate couple, the barrister and his mistress? Do you know their names? Um, that's a, I think his name is Charters. No, that's one of the that's other. That's the cricket guy. You're it's right. Todd you're Hunter. Right. Yes, that's what. Todd that, Hunter. You're right. His, you're right. Mr. Todd Hunter. I love his mistress's like scheme that she um she's ashamed of him for lying that he saw Miss Froy because he doesn't want to be a vital witness and bring their affair into the public light. But then she decides, well, I'm gonna tell everybody because then it'll be in the papers and he'll have to divorce his wife because he's dragging his feet with me and then. So she gets to tell them, like, of course, I'll be a witness. And it looks like that's when things are going to turn around for Iris, that finally somebody believes her. She's not paranoid. Uh, but between them going to grab somebody so that, quote unquote, Mrs. Todd Hunter can give her vital testimony, Todd Hunter says, well, you know, your husband will divorce you, but my wife will never divorce me. So you're really only hurting yourself. So by the time they come back, she's changed her tune. She says, oh, it was really just this other person. It's not who she thinks it is. And it totally screws Iris over and keeps the mystery fresh. I love the way Hitchcock does that because that doesn't seem overly absurd. I don't think that pushes the stretches of reasonability. No, I I agree. I mean the the side all the side characters and their reasons. You know, it's it's part of my you know kind of dovetailing on my reason of appearance versus reality. Where early on in this film, you know, once the mystery presents itself. You really, Hitchcock really does create this scenario where you, as the as the viewer, are saying, "Well, well, who is behind this? Like, who is you know in on this conspiracy? You know, I think I know these people, but but maybe I don't." And yeah, the the Todd Hunters, our two British friends, Caldecott and Charters. I mean, all of them are they have these reasons, and I love your yeah. I mean, the example of Mrs. Todd Hunter thinking she's going to expose the man she ho- hopes to marry, and then when they present the fake. Miss Froy, I mean, you, you think that the conspirators know, like, oh, this is never going to work. This woman actually doesn't look anything like Miss Froy. But because of this other totally different scenario of motivations, uh, you know, Mrs. Quote, unquote, as you say, Mrs. Todd Hunter, up, you know, upholds it and says, yep, uh, that's, the, you know, that's the woman. And you're like, you see this vindication on the fake Mrs. Froy's face of like, I can't believe that worked. I know that actually is one of the funner things of a repeat viewing is how lucky the bad guys get. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the, it's a a subtle point, but the, the acting of the conspirators, whether it's the doctor, uh, all these, you know, the little looks they give that kind of reveal them to be the bad guys before it's really revealed. It's very subtle. It's very well done. Yeah. Uh, A personal side real quick. Do you remember the first time you watched this? If you had the mystery figured out before the reveal? Um, it's tricky to in parts yes um in parts yes in parts no i think i was i was suspicious of certain characters <laughs> i think going into a hitchcock movie like this i was just suspicious of everybody i assumed every single person on this train was guilty somehow and uh so eventually i was right because you know the people at some point you're right when you're out of people but, right exactly but the, but the why is always uh, it's it's even kind of mysterious after the reveal cuz even then miss froy won't tell them like what it's all about and you know because it doesn't matter. It's a famous Hitchcock MacGuffin that the the tune she's carrying. I don't even remember what it is. It's some treaty or something between two nations. Yeah, I mean it's beyond pointless. I mean it's really yeah. actually one of one of Hitchcock's better MacGuffins, I think, because it is com- it is so completely useless. Uh, this tune that represents a treaty. I mean, like I think I rewound to be like, wait, what did she say that even mean? And then I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, let's yeah. just 
And, you know, in, the, the insert whatever reason for will thrust Europe into chaos and war. Exactly. And then, of course, the, I mean, the payoff at the end, jumping way forward. I mean, I, you know, it's it's such a beautiful little moment that, you know, she would happen to tell a kind of a music expert a tune. And then, of course, only love could make him could make him forget it. Absolutely. But it does. Absolutely. But it doesn't matter because Miss Freud survived. Yeah. And man, she can run. I'm always impressed with that shot. She can book it through those woods. Yeah, she can. So tell me a little bit more about um, appearance versus reality. It feels like two of your reasons kind of dovetail together. You have this idea that Hitchcock is toying with appearance versus reality, and that ties into how this is practiced for Rear Window. I'd love to hear how this is practiced for Rear Window. They, they dovetail nicely, which is that we are very early on identify pretty strongly with Iris. And we have this, you know, we meet her in the, in the hotel. We have her lunch with Mrs. Froy. We are, from her perspective, we are completely allied with her. And much in the same way, looking ahead to Rear Window, that we'll be allied with L.B. Jeffries, we are in a confined space like his apartment. We are in this train, and we have all the information that she has. But we get that key period of time, which is that she falls asleep, just like L.B. Jeffries does, and we are alerted to the fact that things must have happened while she was asleep that we don't know. So we completely believe her because we have been from her perspective. But there is just enough of a seed of doubt in that period of time when she falls asleep that we start to question a little bit ourselves and by in turn Iris as to well, was Miss Freud really here? I mean, was, what is the, t- like where, I don't understand how this could be going wrong. But we, by, by kind of allying us with Iris right from the get-go, by exposing us to her what she knows to be true, we are unsolving the mystery from her perspective. And of course, just like L.B. Jeffries tries to convince Grace Kelly that, you know, that he is correct and that this murder has taken place, it is a slow convincing of Gilbert that Iris is in fact correct. It is, you know, romance and trust, as I talked about on Classic Movie Must, are always key to a lot of Hitchcock's movies. And by convincing Gilbert over time, that is in fact how we are kind of sealing the romance between these two characters until they are finally allied in their, in their joint perspective that this is in fact what has taken place. But by kind of withholding information from Iris and from us in the same way, I think it's very much the same techniques that, uh, that Hitchcock will later use in Rear Window that, uh, to, to even pr- more profound effect. And the screenplay and the direction is so good at divvying out that information, like mere, mere seconds before the characters do, you know, showing us the Freud is still written on the window, you know, probably 10 seconds before Gilbert, or, or Gilbert doesn't even see it, before Iris notices it, seeing the tea the wrapper before he gets to go and give his cute little code about how he saw a thousand Mexicans dancing in the hall or something i yeah, that, that's pretty tantamount to, <laughs> that's pretty tantamount to making the mystery work is that we're never too far ahead like like i mentioned even after the reveal who would want to kidnap this sweet old governess like this doesn't make any sense whatsoever yeah. so i think that's a fantastic way in which hitchcock and um the screenwriters whose names i forget uh, they're they're really good at making you care about this mystery, even though, like you said, the, the results don't really matter. It's just some kind of high-stakes situation about global politics, but the, the journey and, like as you mentioned, finding love through the journey is pretty tantamount because that's the real, that's almost the real story arc. The, the mystery of what happened to Miss Froy is kind of an act two 
arc that doesn't play too much into anything else. Act one is about Iris giving up her life of spinsterhood and traveling the world and doing everything as she says, and the, the film climaxes with her running into the car with Gilbert and ducking out on her fiance so that they can go live together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know it's you know the the key plot is really the MacGuffin in that in the end the 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 main satisfaction is that Gilbert and Iris end up together. We don't care that he's we we're not we're not worried that he forgot the song. Uh we're happy but not, you know, it's it that Miss Froy's alive, but it's actually not our primary concern. Our primary concern is that they end up together. Um in that regard, I think, you know, we you mentioned the 39 steps earlier, which I think is a stronger movie overall, but in some ways, uh, I think the romantic payoff at the end is stronger in this movie. Um, I think the yes. romance builds better in, in the 39 steps, but the payoff at the end is really um, crystallized in this movie. Well, they're so similar because, again, the, the big payoff of the romance in 39 steps is her finally seeing that he's not crazy, that there really is some kind of conspiracy, which is the same turn. We've just swapped the gender roles that... yeah. You know, the, the real turn is Gilbert coming to realize, like, okay, Miss Freud really is here. There is some kind of conspiracy. You're not crazy. Exactly right. But, but to speak of them, how adorable is that courtship? I, I think that holds up as well as almost any other screwball comedy that comes out of the decade that is known for it. Yeah, I, th- I think you make a nice point with the screwball comedy. You know, we, we established very early on that, she, you know, she is a, a wealthy lady, but she's, you know, she's str- going to settle down. She has this this future ahead of her, but you can tell it's, uh, it's not entirely what she wants. And then the man studying folk songs in, in middle Europe is her, is her, you know, touchstone to reality. And, uh, the chemistry between the two of them is very strong. It's very sweet. You know, to me, almost Hitchcock and his romances, you know, you realize they're crucial. And in many ways, the, you know, the romance provides more suspense than anything else. And that's something to behold. To me, as I say, it really pays off at the end. I would almost be happy if these were two people who are just becoming friends and have this ridiculous scenario that they're thrust upon them. But to solve, I don't think that, you know, it's not until very late in this movie that you really start to, I think, have that romantic payoff. But that doesn't mean that they don't have excellent chemistry from the get-go. Oh, yeah. The, it carries through uh, what I would say are scenes that probably drag on a little long. The discovery of Senor Dapo's cabinet and him putting on the the deer stalker and being Sherlock Holmes is maybe a little too cute by half, but because they play off each other so well, uh, that scene never bothers me. That's actually a really nice reprieve from the last couple of minutes, which are really just drenched in paranoia. That scene where she has the the meltdown in the dining car, where she yells out for everybody to listen, is a really good example of kind of taking what has so far been a somewhat lighthearted approach to the movie and adding stakes to it, because you really feel the net closing in on her at that moment that, like like you mentioned, I think that's a moment where even though you've seen Froy on the window, you're starting to think, well, maybe there's a rational explanation for that, and she really is imagining all this. Yeah. But you're still with her, and you know, it crescendos with her pulling the brakes and passing out. So I think we really need the uh, the adorable Sherlock and Watson parlay to to levitate some of that absolutely i think they their conversations i agree that you know the the luggage car scene you know maybe has a few moments in it a little extra too long but they're yeah those those down moments and you know hitchcock obviously kind of often a master of pacing they are those relief moments where you can be like okay you know these we understand who these characters are because if 
ultimately we're not invested in them, it's not going to pay off. And so having those moments does provide some of that depth for the characters and our investment in them. And one thing to say about that scene and maybe how it is pacing wise a little off, but I think this speaks to what we talked about in general impressions about Hitchcock trying new things is um, that fight is, is a little choppily edited. It doesn't play like a, a believable action sequence would today, but it isn't just a straight fist fight to shove in to say like, okay, you've had this adorable romantic moment. Let's bring it, bring up the tension with a fight. He's, he's using the disappearing cabinet. He's having Iris being too short. So she's got to like go and stand up on the box to get the knife out of his hand. Like he's still trying to introduce different elements in what would otherwise be a pretty shoved in and boring fist fight. So I kind of, I kind of appreciate that. And I think the same for the, the big shootout at the end sometimes seems a little out of step with the rest of the movie, but the, the way, again, those characters get to get to come to their senses. Uh, it is beautifully portrayed by that moment where Charters, who has been nothing but uncooperative and has denied seeing Miss Froy so that he and Caldecott can get to a, a, the last match of the cricket tournament. He goes out because he's like, this is preposterous. What kind? There's no way that this conspiracy is as dense. Why would it happen to us? And then he gets shot in the hand and in one of the most British things I think I've ever seen in a movie, just calmly walks back to the car with his bleeding hand and just says, you were right. Yeah. And it's a great payoff because you, you're like, did they, you know, we know that they shoot at him, but we're like, did, did he get hit or did he just, did it miss? And he's now been realized that they're going to shoot him. And then you have that pan down and be like, oh no, this poor guy's gotten shot in the hand and he's just yeah. like not even flinched about it. But you know, he's now woken up to the reality. I agree. I mean, the, the fight scene on the luggage car, I think there's so much humor in it that it's, it works, even though you're kind of like, okay, we're doing it. It's, it doesn't exactly seem like how that fight scene doesn't actually resolve the movie. I mean, you have this fight scene. How are they going to get out of this now where it's going to reset to people being like, no, you're just paranoid, but it works. And then, but the, it's to me, it's the shootout where is the most puzzling. And I'm not, it might be more like kind of the preconceptions I bring of Hitchcock to the table where you're like, well, Hitchcock's not going to have a big action shootout sequence in his movie exactly it's that's not very like suspenseful in the same way as as he typically builds suspense but if you take it for granted that okay no we're gonna have a shootout scene it works it works pretty well it's just slightly puzzling that that it's there in the first place and i think that might be in part that hitchcock joined this movie kind of late on and while he added certain things the bulk of the story was there and uh, there's probably a, sh a shootout scene. So, you know, it's not going to rip it out entirely. To me, I think a reason the scene maybe doesn't work as well. One is because I think we're used to a lot more dynamic shootouts with Westerns and things from that era. There's a lot more movement. And Hitchcock has played very fair by his rules thus far in the movie of being in a train in a confined space of you can't leave. It's moving too fast. You're you're stuck here. And, um, you know, once the train has stopped, we we establish that an old woman can make a run for it in the woods and be okay so i think that a lot of the tension gets undercut in that moment but it is still like this nice standoff like i mentioned of all these english characters who have been so oblivious to everything finally standing up to do what's right we have the the nun in high heels who you know whatever her moral code is she won't hurt english people so she takes a stand well, and she's gonna help them too fight. far yeah. can't kill an english and, woman exactly you can you can kill a coward a cowardly english lawyer though that's totally fine yeah that's well that i mean come on now but uh i i agree and it's and that's also a nice little moment you know it's a subtle moment of connection i think between rear window where you have these moments of women's intuition i think where in rear window 
uh, Grace Kelly, mm-hmm. like, you know, a woman would never leave her favorite handbag and her wedding ring behind. And it's Iris who's like, well, you know, a, hun- a nun wouldn't wear high heels. Like, these are the kind of details that only a woman would notice. And uh, perhaps a little misogynistic, but it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a recurrent motif in, in Hitchcock's work. But I feel yeah. like you touched on it already now with the politics here towards the end. Uh, I, let's, should we dive into kind of the political conversation? Because as you say, it's not subtle at all, but it's quite powerful. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the allegory isn't hidden. You have this, you know, trans-European train full of oblivious English people who vehemently deny that anything is suspicious for various reasons, but you have, you know, you, ha- you have this German character convincing all these English people, like, there's nothing wrong, you're being paranoid, everything is fine, he is aided by an Italian citizen, and they're trying to convince everybody, like, nah, this isn't going to affect the world in a big way at all, it's just this little old lady, it's just like this little uh, Czechoslovakian country, it's not going to matter. So, you know, I, I don't even know that I have a, a deep reading because the movie is just so obviously this condemnation. So this movie, I think, came out in November of 1938, if I remember. And in September, we had Never Chamber- Neville Chamberlain coming back from a conference with Hitler when he's waving his piece of paper that says peace in our time. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but even at the time, like a lot of English people were like, uh, yeah, I kind of doubt it. Like, I would really love to believe it's peace in our time, but I don't think anything's going to stop this guy, no matter how much he's trying to reassure us. So, you know, right there, we just have the whole movie as this is metaphor for what was happening with European politics at the time. And so that that ending shootout, however, kind of shoved in as an action sequence, it may be, I think, is, is a call to arms to the English people to to wake up. Don't let dictators run things it starts with you know kidnapping one sweet old lady but what are the consequences where is it going to lead absolutely and you know i think it's it is i'm always interested in kind of the the historical context of when these things were made and obviously in england at the time as you say the the status quo was that you know we're going to keep on going everything's fine censorship at that time wouldn't have allowed hitchcock to directly address germans and nazis and things like that so you set it in a fictional country uh, with characters who all but resemble Germans. And, you know, when the police show up at the end, uh, are dressed not, uh, not dissimilar to Nazi officers. But it's, uh, you know, he, he hides just enough of the iconography to, to make it work. He sets so much of his criticism on Caldecott and Charters and they're, you know, just, they just want to go to their cricket match. And that's all that really, you know, we just want normal life to continue. and. We're not going to get involved, but you know the message there at the end with Mr. Todd Hunter getting shot um, is is strong. And you know while it's it's not subtle and it's not the main point of the movie in some ways, it's um, I think it's it's still a timeless message of trying to look the other way um, and and not you know kind of calling to arms when people see something that's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And and with Charters and Caldecott, it's it's a really great prolonged payoff in the first act because at at first glance they look like guys who are actually pretty concerned with world affairs because they keep talking about Europe on the brink and a gale is blowing and I it's probably like 15 minutes into the movie before you finally get the reveal with that um, phone call that they're really talking about how how much trouble the British team is in at the at the cricket tournament or Manchester or whatever it's a great payoff (laughs) yeah but you know like you said it's great to see those guys not only just like come to terms with what reality is to forsake the appearance, but to be really good at it, that all of a sudden Caldecott, who's kind of been um, second fiddle to charters in their little 
Laurel and Hardy pairing that all of a sudden Caldecott is actually a crack shot and they're really good at holding the train. I think it's a, it's a, it's a pretty inspiring militant moment. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Hitchcock isn't going to undercut his moment that he's going to show you that, well, when the, when the English commit to a cause, they're actually quite effective. It's just getting them to commit. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm curious your thoughts because I remember the first time watching this there's the scene uh, in the hallway of the train when Iris is, you know, making a big to-do about the, miss- the missing Mrs. Froy. And I think it's Char- uh, Caldecott who's in the bathroom and Charters overhears the conversation. And to me, this is, it's kind of goes back to the appearance versus reality that, you know, we have this mystery unfolded. We think we know who characters are. And I think there is... To me, I was suspicious of, of Charters the first time I watched this movie, where you're like, I don't know if it's the scar on his face, but he kind of overhears this conversation and then goes back and tries to make it into a conversation of, of like, oh, she's going to stop the train, we're going to miss Cricket. There's this element where even the characters you think are probably innocent, that you're like, well, are, maybe they're in on this. I'm not entirely sure. sure. Surely someone would have a better reason to ignore this than just cricket. Right, exactly. It's, so, yeah, it's such a pointless reason that you're like, ah, this guy must be a, up to something else. And of course he's not. But uh, I think Hitchcock does a nice job of casting just enough doubt on all the other characters on the train that, that, we're, that we, like Iris, are a little suspicious of everyone and eventually also a little bit of ourselves because at the same time, everyone keeps telling us we're crazy. And this is early in his career, but knowing Hitchcock's style later, you know, really actually helps with that because that's his thing, right? Like he, he doesn't believe in the, the really evil looking bad guy, you know, even here, his faux Nazi doctor is a friend for two thirds. He's, you know, he's a man of science. He's trying to dispel, he's creating the paranoia that Iris falls prey to, but you know, it doesn't come off that way the first time around. He's, he's a doctor. He's a man in authority. And similarly with Charters and Caldecott, you know, Hitchcock likes it when the seemingly normal, nice people are the ones who are behind something sinister. Absolutely. And we'll talk, we'll talk a lot more about that in uh, Strangers on a Train. <laughs> yes, we will. Shall we, shall we talk about the beginning? Because I feel like that's the yeah. area that, you, that, that troubles you the most. And I, I agree with it. But at the same time, I think there's, I think there's like an alluring aspect to it. So why don't, why don't you tell me about your issues? So let's do this because I very easily actually probably could be swayed to change my vote to Cinemus depending on how this conversation goes because I love the first act of this movie for the reasons that you have mentioned a couple of times that the, the mystery of what happened to Miss Freud is not really the focus of the movie. We've, we've kind of called out that really the, the story of the movie is Iris and her, her farewell to a free life to, you know, basically get into a, an arranged marriage. So I think that what makes first the first act drag is just because you have this movie called The Lady Vanishes and the plot summary is always about Miss Froy's disappeared, but this woman swears she's seen her. She has to prove that this lady existed. So when it takes you a half an hour to get to the train, I think it's a turnoff to people who probably don't enjoy classic movies who are kind of taking this on a big leap of faith and they might feel betrayed. But not only is Hitchcock doing amazing things with establishing that screwball comedy romance, not only is he giving fantastic jokes, he's also giving critiques of English insularity. That's a quote I'm pulling from him from like an interview, but he, 
I think Francois Truffaut asked him one time, like, don't you think Britain itself is pretty anti-cinematic? It's pretty bland and self-absorbed. And Hitchcock said after he moved to America and he came back to visit England, he said, yeah, they're very insular. They don't like looking outward too often. And I think The Lady Vanishes is a really cool way to get that kind of viewpoint out there because the whole thing takes place in a foreign country and that entire first half hour is people adjusting to this new culture and starting to have their eyes open to things that they think couldn't possibly happen. We have that line like super late in the movie when I think it's like right before the shootout. It's either Charters or Call the Cop, but he says like things like this don't just happen. And Miss Foy says, well, we're not in England now. So act one through some pretty seamlessly harmless vignettes is, is really getting at that idea because you have all of the stuff with Charters and Call the Cop being forced up into the maid's room, into a level of not necessarily poverty, but it's definitely not the level of luxury that they demand when they first get up to the desk. There's no food. There's there's kind of passive references to how the country is already under the thumbs of a dictator, but all these English people don't care. They come in, they order their steaks, they demand their, their warm baths and comfortable beds. So I, I think there's a lot bubbling under the surface there. It's just... That's what the that's what the movie's really about. But on the surface, that's not what you think it is the first time. So I think that's why I'm a little hesitant about Act One because I worry about somebody taking my word and saying I will give this movie a shot and then being super pissed off that that first half hour really drags. I agree that I think the first time I saw it, it was like, okay, we're we're spending a lot of time not in the train here. Uh, when are we going to get to the action? First of all, I love the like miniature set that opens this film. Yes, um, that's. That's the litmus test. If if you don't like that, I don't know what to say because that is the most charming thing. It's so charming. And when the car drives by, <laughs> yes. you're like, oh man, what a, like, it was his way of being like, oh no, this isn't just like painted or something like that. It's like, you know, but it's, it's great. And he's trying a pretty complex camera move too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a very Hitchcockian move. I mean, like all the way from, you know, up in the sky, down through a window. I mean, it doesn't get it's much, cr- doesn't get much more Hitchcock than that. But I, Sorry, I, I didn't I didn't want to derail you, but that's no, just no, such a great shot. We had to is. call it out. No, I, I appreciate it. When I, I agree with what you're saying, I think there's a very interesting, you know, in, in the same line of that political commentary with that insular uh, English nature comes a sense of entitlement. And from the beginning, you know, Hitchcock is saying that, you know, that entitlement is just going to leave you left behind time and time again. Uh, you know, they, they don't get a room. They don't get any food, any of it. At the same time, there's a criticism of Americans being uh, a little bit more brash, maybe a little bit more likely to try and just solve a problem with money than by anything else with, with Iris bribing the, the hotel manager to, to get rid of Gilbert. Um, I, I like very much your, because I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right that it is uh, kind of the, the structure of a screwball comedy that works very well. What intrigues me so much about the beginning of the movie is that Hitchcock is acknowledging that this movie is going to turn on our understanding of all the characters involved, not just Iris, not just Gilbert, that this is a train's worth of people. And this moment of the avalanche and them having to spend the night is going to allow us to be introduced to a lot of them. And it already starts to plant those seeds of doubt, right? It's Mr. and Mrs. Todd Hunter from the beginning are acting a little suspicious, a little distant. So we start to get them in, into the mix. Caldecott and Charters, they provide great comedic relief throughout. But at the same time, 
we don't really know what their story is. And as you say, they're introducing that political element. So we start to have a little bit of just getting to know the characters before we put them in a serious situation. And that's the key to me, which is that obviously throughout Hitchcock's career, he thrives, he loves putting everyday people in extraordinary circumstances. And I think the opening 30 minutes of this movie is Hitchcock saying, I really want to emphasize that this is a completely everyday situation. People missing a train, having to spend the night. It's just people in a hotel, eating dinner, getting ready, doing their thing. And I am going to use that to my advantage to then sell the gravity of the situation later on. They, these people were just going about their lives, and now a woman is missing. And what's most troubling about it is that some of these people who we thought were just going about their lives weren't. They were plotting something. And it sells more so than I think in the 39 steps where the action gets going immediately. The fact that we have to kind of wade into this with the characters helps um, identify us with Iris, that we were just kind of along for the ride. We were having a good time. We were laughing. We were enjoying ourselves. Nope. There's actually a mystery that needs solving, a potentially life and death mystery as it escalates. And it allows us to, it, it kind of creates that schism all the more harshly that we were just, we were in a normal situation and now we're not. And I think that's what Hitchcock thrives on. And so by extending it, he's trying to kind of really emphasize that transition. And I think, you know, it can be a little off-putting in the sense that you want to get to the action but I think it's effective down the road. Well, you've kind of just made me think that the movie itself in that first act might be reflecting the, the fallacy of my logic here, because here I've said that this whole sequence is about pompous British people who are just you know belittling this third world country, and they're like, oh, it would never happen this way in England. And I, I realize I'm kind of, I'm playing my vote to somebody with a strictly American sensibility about how movies are made. And this is actually a pretty European move to make, to have, like you said, the, the first act be a little more character driven to not get to the meat of things right away. Cause even if we go just straight to strangers on a train, strangers on a train gets going within like two minutes. So even Hitchcock made the leap, but that, you know, that actually might be one of its strength that if this is a movie about getting outside of your particular worldview it's probably worthwhile to to watch a movie that does take its time so i i think you're swaying me i think by the time i post the episode i might have changed my vote to to cinema must oh boy i i have this problem i'm always trying to placate on like well what will people say and i really need to just stand by like how i feel a lot and i i do love this movie i love the first act i could i could totally understand that someone comes out of this movie and says maybe the beginning was a little slow or you know, it's difficult with Hitchcock because we know the masterpieces he's made. So you say, well, yeah, it's good, but it's not as good as. Um, and right. that's just the, the harm of, you know, of, of, you know, Hitchcock having a, this indelible legacy. But at the same time, I can't think of anyone where I wouldn't say, yeah, you should watch The Lady Vanishes. That's a charming movie. It's got a great mystery. It's entertaining from, uh, you know, start to finish to me. I think, you know, the humor and the, and the character kind of portraits that we get in the, in the opening of the movie are uh are great i love you know it's you you would never be able to do it in in an american movie in the in 1938 but they the these american kind of risque women as the as the butlers bringing in their food um it's a hilarious scene of him trying to like you know be proper and not like ogle at these women who are scantily clad 
you know, you get this glimpse of, of a different type of movie making that, from a different country, but I couldn't think of someone I wouldn't recommend this movie to. Solid. I, I, you, you might have made a believer out of me. I think I'm backing down from my hesitations. Oh, boy. We'll see. We'll have to see what the audience says. I know. I'm very excited to see. I, I really, if nothing else, if no one has seen the movie, I really hope everybody gave it a shot. This is probably a little too late to, to be saying that. We're coming at the end of our spoiler section, but I'm, I'm with you 100%. This is definitely one of Hitchcock's most entertaining movies, because even if that first act from a plot structure kind of comes to a standstill, it is loaded to the brim with amazing character interactions. It is incredibly funny it's well observed you like you said you really get to know these people and care for them when they get thrust into a very serious situation and and then act two i there's there's absolutely nobody who i can't see enjoying once we get on the train because it it moves at this brisk pace and is really great at toying with this idea of what uh what's believable in this case even though it's a completely absurd situation there's always good reasoning for why certain things might be covered up, why it might be fantasy or why it might be reality. It, it's pretty masterfully made. And I, I stand by what I said earlier, that this is definitely one of probably the second best of Hitchcock's British films. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, as a final point that for me anyway, that, you know, we talk so much about Hitchcock and his use of camera work and his, you know, the, the structures he has that he brings to his, you know, his stories, his characters and things like that. Uh, that I spent, I think, you know, oftentimes we'll spend, uh, spend less time talking about his actual direction of actors. And as I mentioned briefly earlier, I think he does such a great job of directing the actors to, with just the subtlest of looks of performances. You know, I think back to the 39 steps in the scene on that train, when the main character is looking across at just the eyes of a man reading, you know, while he's reading the newspaper and Hitchcock is so good at using other characters and the either even if it's the blankest look on their face to drive us to think something. And this movie is filled with just those little looks, those little kind of faints away from action that like, oh well, well that character may have just done this, so they're guilty or they're not guilty, or that, that means they're innocent. Uh I think it's really actually very well done, uh, especially amongst the conspirators as they kind of give you those subtle looks that kind of indicate their guilt and then other characters who make you think they're guilty. And I also love the twist of the woman wrapped in bandages, bandages being Miss Froy. I think it's a, a nice little twist. And as a final great little twist, that the, the sweet old lady is really this hardened British spy. And even when things have been horrible after she's freed and they have to shove her in the closet, she's still just so cheery. She's, it's, it's just like being on the underground at home. I love her. She, everybody gives such a good performance. And she, she never loses the spirit of being this older governess. Like, you, you know, like she does exactly. have that quality. Like even once you know she's a spy, she's still this like sweet old lady. And you're like, okay, I see you, Miss Freud. I'm really glad. This is a, a very new addition uh, for this newest edition of 1001 Movies. It had not been in a previous edition. In the foreword, they actually make a point of saying that we, we swapped out some movies from the same directors that we feel better exemplify their work. And they call out that for this, they push Sabotage out and put The Lady Vanishes in. And as much as I like Sabotage, I think that's the right move to make. I think Lady Vanishes very much exemplifies what works amazingly well in this phase of Hitchcock's career. And it's a a fantastic, entertaining movie. We often have this air around some of the most legendary directors that they're on a different plane that they're kind of operating on a different level. And like, you can never forget that Hitchcock was looking to make entertaining, popular movies. And I think the lady vanishes encapsulates that beautifully where you have 
a fantastic story, all these elements, but he never loses sight of keeping you entertained. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say in its defense before we switch over? Just, you know, as, as hopefully you've watched it already, but if you haven't, it's an hour and a half, uh, just over very well spent. Okay. Let's switch over. Let's get over to a different train and start talking about strangers on a train. Now, let's say that, that you'd like to get rid of your wife. It's a morbid thought. No, 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 no. Just suppose. Let's say that you had a very good reason. Now, let's, let's, no, no, let's, no. let's say. Now, you'd be afraid to kill her. You know why? You'd get caught. And what would trip you up? The motive. Ah, now, here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, Bruce. Listen, it's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder. I do yours. We're coming into my station. For example, your wife, my father. Crisscross. What? Oh, we do talk the same language, don't we? Well, sure, Bruno, we talk the same language. Thanks for the lunch. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thought the lamb chops were a little overdone myself. Nice meeting you. Now, you think my theory's okay, guy? Uh, you like it? Sure, Bruno, sure. They're all okay. Okay, so that was that was a pretty big gush fest about Lady Vanishes, and I commend you. I think you have swayed me to changing my vote from trust to must for Lady Vanishes. But um, we switch over to Strangers on a Train now, and we are both pretty adamantly cine trust on this. This isn't a movie that's for everybody. I think we should probably start with maybe what our, our common idea is, is that in your words, we both feel that Hitchcock doesn't really have a lid on his mastery of suspense here, that he tries a lot of things to keep tension up in strangers on a train that don't really work out. I agree. Um, you know, suspense at the, in the end of the day is, you know, kind of in this, in his very deliberate way of, of revealing information to the audience so that we have a sense of the possible outcomes of a situation. And that's what builds suspense. And I think in this case, uh, he has some clever ideas. I can see, you know, you can kind of see what he's trying to do. It just doesn't ultimately work. He's got one moment of, of surprise that I think is a, is kind of a more at the end it's effective, but it's kind of cheap. I just think he's, he's working on something and ultimately, you know, I'll get to that later, but you know, he pulls it off in, in only the way he ultimately can, but he's, he's practicing a little bit here. So would that moment of surprise be the big reveal that guy has not snuck into the chambers of Bruno's father, but Bruno himself is there. Exactly. Okay. I think that's a moment that actually works pretty well. I would say if there's a, a sequence of suspense that does work the way Hitchcock probably wants it to, that one probably comes closest. I think it does fall prey to what I said earlier, that a, a lot of the the sequences here are a little overwrought. They're a little too extravagant. And um, I think Farley Granger spends a little too much time looking at the map in that sequence. I really think that it would be more effective if he could just like keep walking. And it's such a simple map that like really you're just like, how, yeah, how are we still looking at this rooms. map? <laughs> no, exactly. I, I do commend them for introducing um, the dog. I think that's a good little twist that kind of distracts you from the, the main idea of the scene and distracts you for a minute. I'm like, oh man, is he going to be able to get past this huge Great Dane? But the, the big reveal I think is nice that uh, 
there there really is no escape for Guy. There's nothing he can pull over on Bruno. He really is trapped in this horrible situation that he's happenstancely found himself in. Here's my issue with the situation. I do agree. The dog, I mean, that's a great moment of suspense. You have this imposing dog growling atop a dark staircase. And we have all the information. We see this dog. We hear it growling. But we also see a uh, guy approaching and continuing to approach. So the suspense builds because what is it's going to say? Well, is he going to have to shoot the dog? Is the dog going to attack him? We don't really suspect, but ultimately what happens is the dog is kind of a, a softy and just gives him a lick and he moves on. <laughs> We have all the information we need in that scene to, to feel suspense. Now, I think I'll probably be turning to Psycho throughout this movie. But, uh, oh, please and, do. But, you know, Psycho is Hitchcock's best surprise. And it's that mother, I'm sorry if you haven't seen Psycho. Um, I'm probably going to spoil that for you. But if you're already That's in the, fine. if you're deep Both of our shows have done podcasts on it. We are. All right, we're safe then. So. Yeah. The ultimate surprise being that mother is in fact dead. She hasn't been killing anybody. And it's been Bruno, uh, Bruno, it's been Norman in, <laughs> in a dress the whole time. It's a fantastic surprise because Hitchcock has been withholding information from us, but giving us false information along the way or disguised information or kind of very carefully giving us information in a way to lead us to believe that mother is a serial killer or a psychopath. So we're going in with the, this incorrect set of knowledge that's then twisted on us. It's a fantastic surprise. This is surprise. It's the opposite of, it's not the opposite of suspense. Suspense and surprise can overlap, but surprise is very much about withholding information while suspense is about giving information, just giving it in a deliberate way. And I don't think Hitchcock ever gives us or withholds information in any sort of payoff. Like we don't have any particular information about Bruno's father, other than supposedly he's in bed. The surprise is just that we thought his dad was going to be there. It wasn't. It was Bruno instead. It's kind of a cheap trick in that you're like, well, I, had, I didn't have any information. I didn't have any clues. I, you didn't really deceive me other than you changed the situation. You couldn't have been tipped off in any way. So it's, a, it's kind of a cheap surprise to me. And that you're like, oh, okay, well, it's him. All right. There was no way for, re- for me to really be brought along that journey with you. It, it all kind of happens abruptly. It's a good surprise within a scene. But at the same time, you know, you think about Psycho, and that's a surprise that drives a whole movie. This is a, a, a surprise that drives a scene. Sure. And, and maybe to, to double down on how it could be cheaper is it's actually a double surprise. Because for the majority of the sequence, we are led to believe that Guy is finally caving and will go through with murdering Bruno's father. And it's only until five seconds before the reveal that it's actually Bruno that we find out Guy was actually there so he could talk to the dad to say, you need to do something about your son. He's crazy. So you have, within six seconds, you have like this double whammy of, oh, he's not doing what we thought he was doing. Doesn't matter. It's just Bruno in the first place. I, I, I still kind of admire that. I, I, and that's fair. I mean, obviously, I think there is, a, there is certainly a surprising quality when he flips on that light and he's there. And you're like, oh, okay, well. My other part of the problem is that the suspense of the scene that then turns to surprise is, as you say, uh, the, the belief or the uncertainty that will Guy kill Bruno's father? And I don't think at any point in this movie that does Hitchcock convince me that Guy is ever going to kill Bruno's father. I agree that there's like a hint of it where he kind of pulls out the gun, he puts it back. But in the scene prior, he's just, 
you know, kind of confess the whole situation to his, to his girlfriend, his hopeful fiance. Like, I don't believe that you tell someone that and then you're like, okay, I'm going to now go commit murder. You know, he's kind of opened up on a situation. He's going to kill Bruno's father is continuing to try to bury the situation. So it always felt like he's going to maybe try and pull something. It's just the very direct, okay, I'm going to go talk to him. And which makes, to me, makes more sense than him actually saying, okay, I'm going to go kill him. So I, I think that's part of my, also my problem with this movie is the kind of the middle portion of it. I don't think Bruno's ever done a particularly good job of convincing Guy he needs to go kill his father. And I don't feel like Guy's ever actually torn in the inside that he maybe he should or he shouldn't. He's always pretty clear that he's not going to do it. I can get behind that. So a question for you about Guy. Hitchcock's career is kind of littered with these contract players, basically. I think in a, in a bunch of movies, he said, you know, that wasn't my first choice. The studio made me use him. And Farley Granger is one such person um, that I think Hitchcock said for the role of Guy, he would have preferred somebody stronger like William Holden. Do you think if somebody like William Holden had been cast in the role, uh, it would ease some of those issues you just talked about? Potentially, uh, I think a better performance would, would help. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I agree that there's a contrast, like a purposeful contrast of the kind of bland versus the eccentric in this movie. I'm, I'm pretty convinced in any movie, if a character is named Guy, he is deliberately a bland character because <laughs> yes, it's just, yes. he's Guy. You know, I think that's a, a calculated move. I think the character is, is underwritten, but I think a better actor could pull more out of it. So yes, but I would think okay. I would still have issues. I, I think it's a double standard because what, what kind of makes that moment believable to me, I kind of do buy in with the idea that Guy might have finally cracked because he's not a strong character. I, I could believe that, you know, th this decision comes at this, the, this string of situations where Bruno has just been sending him letters. He's sending him the gun. He's stalking him at the country club. And for somebody who is, as, as you say, as bland and seemingly weak-willed as Guy, I can see him not really thinking things through and, and say, I will have the fortitude to still stand by my convictions. I can, I can much easier see him being like, you know, if it'll get him to go away, I think I can grease like this old dude. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think part of it is that what makes the movie has the potential, you know, it makes it interesting on certain levels. It could have made it even more interesting is when you think of Bruno and Guy as, you know, doubles of each other and, and kind of Bruno being the chaos side of things and Guy being the very ordered side of things that, you know, he's the tennis player. He plays by certain rules. He has this dream of a political career. And Bruno is the guy who is just a rich, idle playboy who uh, happens to be a psychopath and wants the kind of chaos way out of things and is, you know, as much thought as he's going to put into something, he's not actually going to do any real work and, and effort. He wants a, an idea that will just get him out of it altogether. So when you think that these are really two sides of the same personality, that's where I think a better actor and a little bit more writing would go a long way. That, you know, we see that glimpse of Guy in the phone booth when he is yelling that he wants to strangle his wife. That's a dark moment. It's, yeah. That's a powerful moment. A better actor could have made it even more powerful. That's the glimpse. It's that moment that we need to then recall later on to say that he didn't kill his wife, but he, was, he wanted to, and he was very, and maybe he is capable. And so maybe he will kill Bruno's father. But after that moment, he kind of returns to such a calm level. I mean, you think back, you know, the tennis match later on where they say, oh, this is a kind of calm and reactive player. 
that's who he is for the rest of the movie until that tennis match when apparently he's playing very intensely. Okay, if you say so. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that, it's, we need to see that Guy might be willing to give in to the side of his personality that's a little bit more like Bruno in order to believe that he's ever going to kill somebody. Well, and that idea is pretty central to the movie. It's just ironic that it never comes through Guy. I, I think if I was going to put this under any of my categories, it would be my first one that uh, I said this is a high concept, mo- high concept movie that's perfect for Hitchcock. And, you know, this, the, the ethical dilemma of this entire movie, I think, permeates so many of his films and even his style because it's, it's a movie about seemingly ordinary, high society people who are just morbidly fascinated with murder and the macabre. And I'm, I'm kind of with you that it would have been nice to see more of that come out in Guy instead of, you know, the, the horrendous words of like this wealthy dowager who's who's gleefully recounting how she would drive her husband out in the middle of nowhere and bash his head in with a hammer and set the whole car on fire i love that scene i like how many moments of this movie specifically women because we have the character of babs who's played by patricia hitchcock who who is just always three steps ahead when when guy is coming into um, the senator's office and the news is they think they're breaking the news that his wife's been murdered to him but actually bruno's gotten beaten him to the punch babs is the one who's already like well what you're gonna need is you're gonna need witnesses because the cops are gonna do this and they're gonna and babs is the one who loves hearing stories about the the axe murderer that had hennessy locked up in a crate with a frozen leg or something yeah it's a great it's a great scene and it's a great performance it's just it's very like matter of fact but clearly uh fascination with as you say with death and and kind of the you know kind of conspiracies and contrivances of police situations and i th- i think the box office success not only of this movie but a lot of other hitchcocks uh, kind of prove that this idea is true that we probably do have a, a fascination with murder and how to get away with it and guy represents the better side of us who would never dream of acting on it he would get a little huffy but he wouldn't actually do anything about it and bruno being the the more fun the where or the better acted character is kind of the id or the ego, I guess, that would just, like you said, indulge in everything. Yeah, he has a theory that you should do everything before you die, including <laughs> drive a car at 150 miles an hour blindfolded. Um, yeah. I think the, you know, the strength of this movie is the premise. It's a great, I mean, it's a great premise of like, you know, well, if two strangers met and traded murders, well, yeah, how would you track that down? Because it's so, you know, that you wouldn't have the motive. And that's, that is a very intriguing premise. And then there is the kind of universal truth, which, you know, kind of comes to the surface in that scene at the party scene later on, which is a fantastic scene, which is every single person, as he's pointed out, has, you know, uttered the words and they're all like, I could just kill that person right now. Even if you don't mean it, you say it. And, you know, when you're angry enough, it maybe glances through your mind um, it, and it goes out just as quickly. But that's the truth that Hitchcock is reliant on. and what sucks us in as the audience and what kind of, you know, causes us to identify, unfortunately, with Bruno. And I think that's one of the intriguing moments, you know, intriguing aspects of this movie, which also will be done even better in Psycho, which is that he does get us to identify with Bruno through a different, you know, variety of techniques. But we are kind of like we see his point and we feel guilty because we see his point. And that's kind of the inner conflict that this movie drives. 
and uh, and to you know to varying extents it's successful and not successful because of the the suspense. So where is it successful for you? What what about Robert Walker's performance um, endears him to you? So to me, the the most successful aspects of this movie are the opening. Um, the the opening sequence I think is fantastic. You have these two men getting out of taxi. You know the taxis were focused on their feet. In the opening minutes of this movie, Hitchcock establishes everything we need to know about this movie. That Bruno, by just the look of his feet, is uh, you know an eccentric rich guy. That guy is a very straightforward um, kind of no you know, no flair about him kind of guy. They meet very co- you know by complete happenstance. We think, although it's it's you know Bruno knows far too much about the situation for it actually to be a, a, a meeting of chance, but whatever. Um, you know, just the touching of feet, this, this opening conversation, and then this lighter, which is, you know, Hitchcock often has his, his kind of objects of significance, and this lighter is the object of significance, and it tells us everything we need to know. We have the crisscrossed rackets, just as they are going to crisscross their murders, and we have the initials that, that tell us about the driving romance of this movie that will be Guy's ultimate motivation. Um, it's everything we need to know in a, in a brief couple minutes and in one key object. So it's an excellent setup in that regard. The key moments to me are the scenes that really seal this movie as being very interesting are the fairground scene when, God, uh, when Bruno kills Miriam and then the party scene when he strangles Mrs. Cunningham uh, almost to death. I think those yes. are the moments where Hitchcock, where the, the, those are the masterpiece moments in this movie. And it's because of how we identify completely, completely with Bruno. Um, he, we established very early on, just like with Norman Bates, that uh, this is kind of a charming, likable guy. And, you know, you can't help but identify with charming people. That's the nature of it. And he is very, he has this appealing quality about him and this, although morbid, uh, appealing logic to what he's saying. And then as the movie goes on, I mean, that fairground sequence from beginning to end, you know, I'm sure we'll probably talk about it in more detail, but it culminates quite literally in our hands, strangling Miriam. You know, we are looking out of Bruno's eyes. It, they appear to be our hands. We are now culpable in this situation for, for Miriam's death. And then that is echoed later on as it's our hands around Mrs. Cunningham's neck and, you know, kind of us looking into now Babs's eyes as, you know, as she kind of recalls Miriam. It's, it's those moments that bring us into the mind of the psychopath and, you know, kind of create that sense of guilt of, oh God, like we're, we're weak, you know, are we guilty along with Bruno? Yeah, totally. I'm with you that, and I think, again, this is where, you know, hiring somebody like William Holden to play Guy would be a mistake because I think we need Guy to be uh, a bit lackluster in order to latch on to Bruno because the movie, like I said, hinges on us getting behind this idea that, uh, we, we have a fascination with murder and that um, these seemingly indecent things to discuss are really a part of human nature. And I, yeah, they, they nail it with Bruno because he's, he's by all accounts, a really unlikable character. Like you said, he's very lazy. He kind of just imposes himself wherever he goes. Um, but there's something also admirable about that, that he has the courage to approach this minor celebrity on a train and carry on a conversation with him. You're right. There is a, a charming bit of his personality there so that by the time he is you know stalking miriam you know we're, we're pretty much on his side we're, we're down with him popping the kid's balloon that's actually a, a funny moment it's not like a, a moment of like look at this douchebag and it, it probably helps too that in plot structure hitchcock 
keeps a pretty strict morality because everything that we know about Miriam really sets her up that she deserves this. She's a pretty unlikable character. She's very conniving and scheming and out for herself. And she's so, I mean, she's so, she's detestable as a, as a, as a person that you're just like, you, you hate her almost instantly, both in her demeanor and her actions that yes, it, it makes it very easy to, to kill her and feel a certain amount of, uh, of satisfaction. And, and, you know, you have, I mean, that, that stalking sequence is, it's very eerie. And like you, you, as you say, you know where this is going. It's this great, I mean, it, it plays off of her personality that she, you know, as you say, that she's flirting with him, the scene when he kind of instantly appears next to her, next to the, the strong machine, the, you know, the, the, the hammer machine, um, is very creepy that you're like, oh man, where did he come from? But in that, in that same moment, and this goes back to what you said about Lady Vanishes, about Hitchcock knowing where to put his close-ups and small facial gestures, after he's, he's broken the bell and won the Cupid doll, Robert Walker does just this super quick, like, raising of his eyes, like that flirtatious, like, Bugs Bunny thing. And it's so f- charming. Like, in the midst of the sequence that you're right, is, is really creepy and is almost out of a ghost story, he's still really human and really charming and you kind of get why she's allowing him to to play along and it also gives reason for why he necessarily wouldn't get called out or caught because he's not very subtle when he goes about his murder i think but he knows he knows who he's appealing to and i think that's bruno's you know one of his his uh qualities is that he knows by and large how to appeal to the person he's talking to and we see that you know when he becomes friends with the people at the club and when, when he kind of brings Mrs. Cunningham in on this conversation about death and he knows that uh that Miriam is what she is and uh subtlety is not her game. And you're right cuz senators are always wanting to hear about harnessing the life force and smelling flowers on Mars. They're really into that stuff. I tell you, I mean it's uh, it's the way <laughs> of the future. <laughs> that's a that's a good thing. I think I think the key is though and it's 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 you know established in that he has this hateful relationship with his father but his has his doting mother who he clearly knows how to manipulate that he knows how to manipulate and deal with women, but he doesn't know how to deal with men, and that's a different conversation. Which is um, maybe a little ironic because the big, the elephant in the room about this movie is that there are these very palpable homoerotic energies that exist in the interactions between Guy and Bruno. Again, as I said in Lady Vanishes, it's like not even subtle when you watch it today that Bruno acts very flamboyantly in the way that a gay character would in the 50s um, but I, I find that's also a part of his appeal because he's still kind of embodying this so-called indecent thing that is real that the movie is really making a case for is is just imbo- um, implanted in human nature. And I think that's actually one of the things that makes both Robert Walker's performance and the movie as a whole hold up decently well in his entire filmography. Yeah, I think uh, you know it's it's something Hitchcock comes back to where a lot of his villains in this period of his career are flamboyant there's a certain flamboyance but also a certain elegance uh, they're kind of dandy figures and uh and it's something he kind of returns to and, and bruno no question exemplifies that i think it's you know it's from the beginning when you know his mother giving him a manicure and as we see you know he yeah he's very good at kind of charming with women but he can't seem to communicate on the same level with a man and yeah i think there's a certain um sexual tension that probably stifles him in that regard I think, you know, it's, there's a, you know, the, the phallic me- metaphors are there, certainly that, that guy is, uh, is more than ready to, to grip his tennis racket, but Bruno is, well, he's in search of something to wrap his, his hands around, and he just <laughs> happens to tend to do it around women's necks. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And and similarly, like you said, if Lady Vanishes intrinsically ties romance and mystery together, then Strangers on a Train goes a little more deeper and ties seduction with murder. Yes, absolutely. Um, right. There's no question that I think it's it might also be in the in that Truffaut interview book that that Hitchcock mentions wanting to film love scenes as though they were murders and murders as though they were love scenes. And I mean, this movie does that a lot because um, it, with that amusement park sequence, you have, you know, flirtation being mixed with stalking, with murder. You have food in the mix. It's, it's really actually this clever sequence set in this fair that's all about letting go and having a good time. You know, there's, there's a subtext there about just all of the base human needs and, um, yeah, seduction and violence and food and all that kind of merge together in this really good stalking sequence absolutely and it's a great scene of suspense right we know he's most likely there to kill her that this is going to be the moment and we have this place filled with contraptions that are dangerous in one regard or another and so it's just when is he going to do it and that builds the suspense for us and we have what is uh, a nice little moment of deception in the tunnel of love where his i mean visually with his shadow overtaking hers it's a very ominous moment and then we get the scream but it's just her laughing and we're like, oh, you know, it really, it's, that's Hitchcock at his, at, you know, working on his A game. And then we do get the scene um, in, on the island, and I, and, you know, the reveal of which of her running directly into him, but, you know, we're from his perspective and then the, the lighter appearing. It's, uh, it's very creepy. Absolutely. Sorry, I cut you off. You're about to go on to something. No, no, I just that, you know, that, that sequence, I'm, I agree with you that, that, you know, he, that that is a Hitchcockian set piece that has all kind of elements working together, um, and it culminates in in that great moment. But a uh, great moment—that's a great cinematic <laughs> moment. Get you her, know. Um, you know. We're, but we do we feel a certain satisfaction in that she's dead, and it, it takes the reminding of the senator that you know she's a human being, um, as even Bab's saying, you know, that some people deserve to to deserve to die, and you know. That is kind of the central tension in the movie going straight up to the end of the movie, right? This movie ends happily. Guy is redeemed, he is vindicated, and he gets to be with the woman he loves. And as an audience, we feel that satisfaction of oh, the happy reunion at the end. And we kind of forget that it was all made possible by murder. And Bruno was right. You know, Guy gets the happy ending because of murder. And there's, uh, there's no two ways around that at the end. But I, you know, it brings me back to one of my points, the doubling. I mean, obviously we've talked about Guy and Bruno. I think they're, you know, very interesting doubles. I think it could have come out more so with a little bit more writing, a little bit, maybe a different performance in that if we saw a little bit more of Guy, um, you know, I think Bruno, you know, he's correct in that Guy is kind of playing Ann Morton for the career. Like, and not that he doesn't love her, but he does have his eye on the kind of prestigious career. Um, it is a very like ordered progression of life that he has in mind. And if we got a little bit more of a glimpse of that side of him, um, you know, rather than just kind of a, a bland love affair that we're not particularly invested in, um, between him and Anne, you know, it's not, this is not a romance that we care too much about the characters other than we don't want Bruno necessarily to win. Um, you know, they they provide interesting double, uh, Bruno and Guy provide interesting doubles. We've got these two fathers in, in Bruno's father and then the senator who are these kind of cold people who kind of, you know, show different sides of, of a similar character. Uh, obviously, the, the doubling of Miriam and Babs and their similarities and looking alike is very interesting. You've got the, the two detectives. And then, of course, you have Hitchcock and a giant base 
that uh, you know quite double, double each other physically quite accurately. <laughs> yeah, you got a huge kick out of that. So you, you said we we want we want Bruno to lose, and I I feel like I have a different reading of the movie just because I really like at the very end that even up to his dying breath he will not give up the the charade. He will tell the cops that it's all Guy's idea that he was trying to go get the lighter, but he failed. I think that's such a good moment. And there's a part of me that always wishes that's how the movie ends is with the guy getting carted off to prison because he, he can't get the last confession. Yeah. Uh, that, that may be, that would be an interesting twist on the ending for sure. I think it's, yeah, it's true to character for sure that Bruno wouldn't now just be like, Oh, you're right. It was all me. But at the same time, you know, I, I guess it's the, uh, it's just the good-hearted side of me that I'm like, well, I'm glad that I guess Guy isn't going to jail. It's a nice joke for the for the movie to end on another stranger trying to talk to Guy, and he just goes straight face, gets up, and walks away. As good as I think the character of Bruno is and how good Robert Walker is, I don't feel that this is necessarily a movie about characters. It is high concept. It's about these ideas of indulging in indecent proposals. And I, I really like this idea that Hitchcock pursues elsewhere, especially in his wrong man movies like North by Northwest and 39 Steps. I think the reason that first sequence works so well where Bruno lays out his plan is is kind of how horrifying the idea that this completely random event could feasibly happen and really just ruin your life. And I love the way Hitchcock visualizes it with that shot of the, the switch tracks on the, the railway that shows with just a, a tiny movement of a rail from like one one inch to the left or right. You know, you set this train on a completely different path and I, I find that idea is pretty strong that there's random chaos that can hurt the innocent. And again, I'm with you that I wish better character or, or another, another pass on the script had been given to give the characters a better voice to get at that because it's kind of all Hitchcock here. It's all him with his storyboarding, with the way he shoots things that, that makes that come alive more than necessarily the performances, whereas Lady Vanishes is a lot more character driven. I, I agree. I, I, yeah, the shot of the train tracks is a great visual embodiment of this kind of happenstance chaos. I think I agree with you to a certain extent that this, that Bruno is meant as kind of this way of trying to manipulate the audience. And I think, you know, Psycho is so powerful because after, you know, after the, the shower scene that we do attach ourselves to, to Norman Bates and then to have this reveal at the end that he is this heinous character uh, implicates the audience in this fascinating way. Uh, and I think Bruno is an early attempt at doing the same thing of kind of drawing out some of our, the more sinister side of us and kind of how we can try and rationalize a situation. Uh, and then, you know, having to kind of deal with the guilt thereof. So I agree that, you know, and it's, and it's in the end, maybe a little less fleshed out than, than in psycho, um, and therefore not quite as effective. You've mentioned a few different examples of just kind of those visual, I mean, Hitchcock is, is such a visual master, you know, the train tracks. I love the scene when uh, Guy and Bruno confront, or that, you know, when Bruno tells Guy about Miriam's murder about around mm. the bars and you have uh, Bruno behind bars and then Guy joining him behind bars when the police arrive. I think it's a great little moment. And, then, you know, I'm, you've got me acting like a criminal. Um, and then the most of the two most eerie shots in this movie, which I, you know, I think are just burned into my brain are the scene at the country club during the tennis match with everyone's heads going back and forth. But Bruno just staring directly at us, um, and at guy shot. And then the one of when, when guy is walking by the memorial, 
with Hennessy, the detective. Yeah. It's, it's just Bruno, this little black stain on the like pristine white memorial. It's so eerie. Um, yeah. That one speck of black just overpowering this vast structure of pure whiteness. Yeah, that's a great, that's like a straight out of a monster movie. That shot is so good. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to circle back to this idea of failed suspense because I I don't think we can end this episode before we've talked about the way this movie ends, which was on my mind throughout our last conversation on Lady Vanishes when we were talking about the, the gunfight on the train. Oh, maybe that's a little shoved in. Here, here in Strangers on a Train, we have this pretty introspective analysis of, um, you know, the, the deep, seedy desires of our hearts that we don't allow to get on the surface that, that ends with a, a runaway carousel from hell. And I kind of wanted to know just your, your personal take on that being the, the climax of the movie. Well, I go, I, if you don't mind, I want to go back a little bit further, which is to the tennis match. That uh, please to me, do. that's when it, it please yeah it, it really kicks off, which is with the tennis match and then culminating in that in that carousel ride. You know, I think Hitchcock throughout his career, and this is what's puzzling to me, he's such a master of using time as a way of driving suspense. You know, I think of Notorious, and I think of those dwindling champagne bottles, and we understand so completely as the audience that once the champagne bottles run out, our main characters are going to get caught. Um, and so then by cutting back to that, we are, you know, the suspense is driven so effectively. And I see Hitchcock's attempt at saying, well, I'm going to use a tennis match as a time mechanic that is this kind of back and forth, but it has this end date, but it can get prolonged. It's an interesting idea, but no one went to Strangers on a Train to watch a kind of poorly shot tennis match of, you know, an overly edited tennis match. It's to me, completely ineffective in terms of driving suspense in the sense that you just want the match to be over with already because it's frankly boring. Um, right. The other issue of it is that, you know, as I say with the champagne bottles in Notorious, we know no more champagne bottles means that the characters are going to get caught. We don't have a clear sense of the fact that this tennis match is getting prolonged. What does that mean? And it's because the characters are too far apart from each other. You've got Guy in a tennis court and you've got Bruno already in, you know, near the fairground. And then the, to try and mix that with, well, he's playing tennis and he's trying to catch the lighter out of a drain. I don't have a clear sense of the, how these things correspond. It seems like even if he gets the lighter, he's already way too far ahead for it to be relevant at this point. Both of these things, the tennis match isn't interesting. The, the, the lighter in a, in a grate is appeals on just kind of our most base level of like, ah, I just want the fingers to grab the lighter because they seem so close. It's just this kind of natural human instinct to want it to be fulfilled. And then it's because we don't know this yet that Hitchcock has this whole other time mechanic layered that he's got as the second stage that we don't know, we don't anticipate it, so that when the tennis match is finally over, now it's a race against the sun. And it's like, oh, well, if I had known that that was the issue then I don't know if I would have felt as strongly about the tennis match or the lighter. Because if I knew that once, you know, once Bruno, it, it totally undercuts the lighter. Bruno had hours to get the lighter because he actually needs the sun to set. It, to me, he's, yes. he's mixing too many time mechanics of characters who are too far apart that you're like, well, what does any of this actually matter? And frankly, it doesn't. It really matters is the time, is the sun setting. And they get there at the same time. It, it, it to me is a totally ineffective use of time that totally undercuts the suspense. 
So I couldn't have said that better myself. You you nailed it that in that closing 20 minutes, he is just introducing way too many things to introduce a countdown that ultimately are of no consequence. Uh, I, I'm with you. What you said, the, the lighter thing seems clever and is kind of like a good way of, you know, pointing a mirror back at the audience to say like, hey, you're supposed to be rooting for this guy not to get the lighter, but here it's a, a moment of tension. But similarly to the dog on top of the stairs, you know, this just seems like something that is being inserted strictly for the sake of raising up tension and not something that is playing into the movie's ideas or its story. And furthermore, this speaks to my idea that I think this movie really pushes your suspension of disbelief. Guy doesn't even seem that invested in tennis. If it's so important for him to get out of this match, why doesn't he just start losing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Why does he? Yeah, that's a great point. And I don't like to nitpick things like that because I like to play with a movie by its own rules. But like you said, there's there's too many moving pieces in this section that ultimately go nowhere because it, it all hangs on this immutable movement of the sun itself. So just go with that. Short, shorten that sequence because you said, you know, Lady Vanishes flies by at a brisk hour 35. I think I don't think Strangers on a Train is too much longer. I think it's like an hour 40. It's It easily feels like a two hour movie. And it's it's a shame because I think, I mean, really, I think the opening of this movie is its strongest. The middle, it starts to get unraveled just because I think Bruno takes too long to actually put Guy in a situation where he has to act. It's a little too much, just kind of like everyone's standing by waiting. And then, yes. but the end is when it actually starts to become, to me, ineffective and undercut the, the strength of the moment. And it's ultimately, they've got this elaborate plan and Guy... He really doesn't evade the cops whatsoever. So you're like, well, what was the point of any of that? <laughs> yes, yes. How did they know he was going to the train station? I, you know, I'm not exactly sure other than it's just a good guess. Um, and then, you know, it's, so it's just like, okay, now, and then he's being followed once he's there. The police are completely, uh, we'll talk about them in a second, but they're, I mean, completely ineffective from beginning to end of this movie. Uh, you know, and Hitchcock is often critical of the police and institutions, but um, they are just laughably bad in this movie. And they have a face, too, in Hennessy, who's a pretty likable guy. Yeah, he is a likable guy. Uh, I agree, uh, you know. But uh, so then, yeah, they, they finally all get to, to the fairground. And to me, you know, the last however long the tennis match is, it feels, you know, it just feels endless. But to me, that totally takes me out of the movie. Then once we finally get to the, the fairground, now everybody is in one place. And Guy seems a little, I don't know, I think it's just the performance, but he's a little lackadaisical in the whole situation. I'm not sure quite how, you know, and it's the same, you know, the, the, the burden of proof in this movie is quite low that it's just this. The, oh my gosh. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the police are instantly very suspecting of guy when I think he actually has a pretty good point that if he happened to know this guy happened to be on a train, that's eh, maybe let's, he's not number one right. suspect. Right. And then the the guy who rents boats, because he saw Bruno, he's, he knows he's the murderer. And it's just like, okay. And like that, you know, things escalate so quickly there. And then, all right, so I guess we're now at the carousel sequence, which to me is a disaster. So I agree it's a disaster, but I kind of like it. Okay. <laughs> just, just, just like you said, to, to have had this preceding like 15 minutes that is just that just really gets away from Hitchcock for him to basically kind of just be like, well, we've been, we've been really slow and introspective. F it. Let's just make this carousel go crazy and throw these guys onto it. No one else can get on it. And the kids are having a good time. To me, it's kind of starting to acknowledge that like, yes, the, the climax of this movie has really gotten out of my hands. So I might as well just 
own it for something that is very visually unique and entertaining. Because at a base primal level, I really do like this idea of the, of the carousel from hell going around and these two guys who are locked in the wheel and no one else can get in or out and they will they will just grapple within it until one of them is is thrown. I, I think there's a somewhat interesting visual metaphor they've got with that. As well as, like you said, um, this has got to be one of the best examples of the ineffectiveness of Law and Order in a Hitchcock movie. Shooting the carny is just this other level of incompetence. It, it, and to me, it, it takes me out of it too much. Um, in that, yeah, you know, because Guy is is on the right. I mean, it's not like he's just committed the murder that you think he's committed. It's not like he's about to necessarily murder anyone else. So you're just, you know, you take out your gun, you start shooting when there's like, you know, women and children and families everywhere. And, yeah. and apparently yeah. you, yeah. Sh- you shoot the guy who's operating the carousel. And, what, what seems and like keep he in mind, him that in guy head. is in the middle of the carousel where children are spinning around him in moving target fashion. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, yeah, 100%. The bullet has had to go, probably pass over the head of at least three children before striking <laughs> this old man, probably square in the face, because it seems like an instant death for him. And yep. then this fight scene, which is just... I see what you're saying, you know, that the police jumping on getting immediately thrown off. And there is this, there's a poetic quality, if I'm being generous. On yes, the, it is very generous. On the you. idea of, you know, these men who are thematically doubles of each other being caught going around in circles, battling each other endlessly. Um, that, you know, the, the kind of the chaos side and the ordering side, uh, it's impossible for necessarily one to prevail. But again, because we're already in this situation, the suspense is gone for me. Um, this little boy who almost goes flying off the carousel. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel good, but we've, he's going to be fine. Like, it's not, to me, it's not like, oh my God, this kid's going to go flying off. That's not, to me, a, a huge concern. Then, right. you know, this fight, you know, them fighting on the ground and, and getting kind of almost hit, or I'm not quite sure if they are getting, you know, smushed by the, by the horse of the carousel's foot. But like, that's not going to, that's like, it it almost plays it off as though like guy's going to get stabbed in the face by the foot of the horse. And you're like, well, yeah, he's going to, he's going to get trampled by a merry-go-round. Yeah. yeah, But you're like, that's not actually a major threat. And then what is bordering on just parody is this old man who comes in out of nowhere (laughs) and is like, I've got it. Don't worry. And there is a certain amount of suspense of him crawling underneath the carousel because you're like, oh man, this does look tight. And then he gets in there and seems to confuse, you know, what is a break with a self-destruct button. And yes. Just completely. <laughs> okay, thank like, you. Did, did you have any qualifications to go in there and decide to stop this carousel? Do you know what the carousel does? Because it seems like you've created a far dangerous, more dangerous situation. Exactly. Well, well, to speak with what you were saying earlier about, like, nothing of, of the tennis match being of any consequence. Like, yeah, you're supposed to be rooting for this guy to finally stop the carousel so that the madness can end and effectively doing something that looks like it really should kill everybody on it. Like, there's explosions and sparks. It's, that's actually quite visually quite quite powerful, where you're like, man, that is... Oh, they really destroyed oh yeah. that carousel. Great image. And again, like, if you're going to shove in, like, this action sequence, like, what a way to crescendo it. But, um, you know, when, when everybody else gets up and Guy just kind of, like, dusts off his jacket, and you're like, weren't they worried that there were a bunch of, like, kids on there? How did they fare against this... Like you said, the self-destruct sequence. Right. I mean, guys should have let that little boy fly off the side. It would be safer than being on it uh, <laughs> during its explosion, which is, just, yeah, it's just like, oh, okay, where did, I mean, it's to me much more satisfying when Hitchcock culminates his movies with very kind of clever, satisfying, thoughtful 
conclusions. I mean, and this is just such a like, all right, well, it's going to be a big old fight and it's going to end in explosion. And, and, you know, Bruno's going to get crushed under the weight of it. And it's just like, okay, I didn't, you know, like what, you know, what's the takeaway there? Where's the suspense that builds and where, and where is the payoff at the end other than now that they get to be together? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and you nailed that too. How much better a sequence, how much better of an ending did Hitchcock make with Notorious just making his, his big tension-ridden climax for people walking down a staircase? I mean, that scene in Notorious gives me chills every time I watch it. And, and you're right, exactly. It's, you know, because of how you build up to this moment, how you understand the characters, how you understand the tension and how a threat doesn't have to be a carousel spinning around at 100 miles an hour. Um, for it to be extremely tense um, yeah. and to and to understand, you know, you don't necessarily need a person to get crushed by a carousel to understand their fate, like uh, like at the end of Notorious. And it's far more chilling to know that he has to walk back inside the house alone. And then again, to me, what is a powerful moment at the end of this movie is that they get to be together. They get to be happy. And we've just kind of glossed over the fact of poor Miriam, who, unlikable as she was, was murdered for the benefit and- of their love. And her unborn baby. And, their, and her unborn child, absolutely. And there's no recall of that at the end unless you make it yourself. You know, it's just kind of, you have this kind of light comedic moment of uh, a priest of all people asking if it's Guy Haynes on the train and them who are supposedly, you know, ready to get married and should be running towards a priest are uh, skeptically running away. But, right. uh, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, the ultimate, I think, the, as you say, this is a, a high concept movie experimenting with getting the audience to feel, to identify with the villain and to feel culpable in death and to feel a guilt around that. And it kind of drifts away from that in its final moment. And I, I think all this goes to illustrate that after the, the murder of Miriam with the fairground sequence, the movie just really gets away from Hitchcock because the, the craft just can't keep up with the high concept ideas. But also to say, I, I kind of preface this in general impressions that I think this is the kind of movie only Hitchcock could have made. I, I do think I stand by that because we actually have a slew of like r- loose remakes of this movie. We have things like Horrible Bosses and Throw Mama for th- from the Train, which to various degrees are much worse. I, I enjoy Horrible Bosses as a comedy, but, you know, H- Hitchcock held this story together better than anybody else did. It just still was too much for him. Yeah, I agree. It, uh, it, it kind of slips through his fingers there as a, as a ironic connection between our friend bruno and his meticulously strong hands yes <laughs> it, it's just weird because like you say i think it's still a movie we're seeing because it is so implanted in his career like you said this is a big warm-up for you know in four years he's gonna do rear window and make one i what i think is one of the best movies of all time yeah like he, he's about to go on a major streak and i mean he's He's had great movies before this. He's done Notorious before this. He's done Shadow of a Doubt. He's done Lady Vanishes. But um, yeah, this, this is just on the cusp of like his real golden era. You know, I don't want to fault him that he didn't have it all figured out right away. But at the same time, it's not a movie I think you can say everybody's got to see. Absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's exactly that. And I, th- I think it is interesting to watch a master, um, you know, figuring things out. I think to me, this movie is far more interesting if you've seen Psycho because, I, you know, to me, the reasons to watch this movie are Robert Walker and his performance, which, as you aptly described at the beginning of this episode, is magnetic. And his ability to draw you in as a character and for Hitchcock to get you to identify with him is very interesting, but it's more interesting in the sense of, but watch how well he does it in Psycho. And that, that is yes. when it works 
to perfection. And, you know, it's, I guess maybe it's up to you as a film viewer. Do you just want to watch the masterpiece, the perfection? Because I totally understand that. Watch Psycho and you'll get, I think, the best parts of this movie. But if you want to understand how Hitchcock got to Psycho and that it didn't just come out of nowhere, then I think Strangers on a Train is an interesting movie to watch because while I think this movie has a fascinating premise, I think it's ultimately executed on ineffectively enough that the premise loses some of its meaning. So based on itself, that's why I'm like, I I wouldn't recommend this movie to everybody. But if you're interested on how Hitchcock got to a masterpiece, then yeah, absolutely watch it. And and even a few things, it does really well on its own. We both praise the the opening, the the proposal scene on the train, as well as the the fairground stalking sequence. I think we would count those as really great Hitchcock. They're just unfortunately Act One. Yeah, I think you know the strongest moment in the in the latter half of this movie is Bruno at the party with his conversation with with Miss Cunningham. Is it's a suspenseful conversation? You're like, I mean is this guy really going to give it all away in this, to this lady in this conversation? Like, why is he telling her all of this? But he is magnetic when he does it. And then this moment of real is, you know, that he, this connection with, with Babs where he, you know, takes it too far is quite something to watch. But the fairground sequence, that's, that is something to behold. Yeah, it's really good. So, well, we, we have pushed time quite a bit, but I thought it was a really good conversation. Is there any final points you'd like to make on it? No, um, you know, you can't go wrong with Hitchcock. At the end of the day, the bulk of his movies are very entertaining. They're very interesting. I think these ones are, are fascinating in how they kind of represent a master at work. And, uh, and so give them, give them a look, and I'm excited to see how people vote. I am too, yeah. So thanks for the segue. We now put it out to the listening community to go to episode 26 post at cinemas.com. It is now up to you all to vote whether or not this should be, both of these should be considered must-see movies. We're going to have that poll open until midnight on November 18th, so that gives everybody two weeks to watch these movies, rewatch them if you've seen them already. I really can't wait to hear everybody's thoughts. Maybe we're a little off base. Maybe there's a lot of uh, redeeming qualities about Strangers on a Train. But uh, yeah, Max, thank you so much. That was a fantastic discussion, and I'm glad we could kind of keep your, your Hitchcock month rolling so you didn't have to go cold turkey right away. I appreciate it. I, I would have been, it could have gotten ugly if I didn't have this opportunity to talk a little bit more. So what's next for you on Classic Movie Must? So Classic Movie Must, uh, in the month of November, we're getting back to just kind of the diversity. We're jumping around. Let's see, uh, the, the second half of this, this episode, we got a few guest episodes coming up on the show. We've got uh, some Charlie Chaplin with, uh, with The Kid coming up. And, uh, and in December, we're, we're hitting uh, an all-time classic with Casablanca. So make sure you're, you're oh, stay yes. tuned for that. Oh, I can't wait. That'll be great. Thanks, everybody who listened. We hope this was an enjoyable show. Uh, I've got a quick favor. If you are listening to us on iTunes, we would also very much appreciate it if you could take a few moments to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's going to help our show gain more visibility. And more importantly, we get to see what you're thinking of the show and what we can do to improve it. And even if you're not on iTunes, we'd love your feedback just as much. You can reach us on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages, as well as send us an email at cinemas at gmail.com. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you will join us in two weeks for our next episode. My good friend Jeff Reed is going to make his debut on the show, and we're going to be discussing two zany 1987 cult classics with RoboCop and Raising Arizona. It's kind of a a mismatched show, but I'm pretty excited for it. That should be be fun. Max, again, thank you. Uh, It has been 
my dream for the past like six months to get you on the show and you have done me a great favor. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh man. The honor has been all mine. Uh, I'd love to connect with some of your listeners as well. Cause I'm sure we're all, we're all mutually interested. You can follow me on Twitter at Max Burrell pods or my show classic movie musts at movie musts pod. Let me know what you think. If you disagree and you think Max, you're crazy. Strangers on train cinema must, I want to hear it. So reach out. Oh yeah. Me too. Those are, those are always great comments. And yeah, if I haven't stressed this enough already, everybody really like go follow those tags, go follow at, at Max Burrell pods, go follow at classic movie must. It's a fantastic podcast, much shorter than ours. Max tackles one movie a week. He's not uh, in, as in over his head as we often are. So you will not be sorry for following the show. Thank you. Well, Max, I, I wish you well and uh, stay off of any trains, dude. Yeah, I'm, I'm staying clear altogether. Dangerous places. And that goes for all of you listening. Thanks so much. We will see you next time. 